Well, it was one of the reasons why I came out of the military. Yeah. Because the cognitive dissonance was the militaries were espousing certain values and then illustrating it completely different, actually almost 180. So this is a it's something that a lot of people don't quite understand. I didn't develop post-traumatic stress because of being hit by a roadside bomb. Mm-hmm. I developed post-traumatic stress because I had 110 lives vested under my command. And during my tour in Iraq, we worked out why we were really there. Welcome to the Run Your Life podcast, and thank you very much for taking the time to listen to any episode that you can. The whole purpose behind this podcast is to share stories from the world of education and beyond of people who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life. Through hard work, adversity, and challenge, each of my guests have developed a fundamental framework that helps to navigate them toward excellence in their chosen field, whatever field that may be. As we know, success does not come easy, but those who are most successful have a North Star or a reference point that helps to lead them toward better understanding themselves in order to make a difference to others who they lead. Nowhere is this more evident and in the story and journey of my guest today. In today's episode, I feel very lucky to have interviewed James Greenshields, a former commander in the Australian military who led over 100 soldiers on a combat mission 15 years ago. I was connected to James by a good friend, Dale Sidebottom. Dale and I are both very passionate about education and learning, and often share resources, ideas, and inspiration with each other. It was Dale who suggested that I get James on my podcast as he had interviewed him on his own podcast, the Energetic Education Podcast, a while back. I read as much as I could about James and then reached out to him to be on my podcast because his story is not only inspirational, but so much can be learned from his journey. As I mentioned, he was a commanding officer in the Australian military, and he was responsible for leading over 100 soldiers on a combat mission to Iraq. In 2007, he and his regiment were hit by a roadside bomb, which ended up forever changing the path that James was on in life. Although he experienced war, this episode has nothing to do with war itself, but more so about love, connection, purpose, and common humanity. After 17 years of devoted service to the Australian military, James decided to commit himself to a different cause. Having suffered PTSD and major depression that almost cost him his life, he found greater purpose in helping to heal others who suffer from trauma and other forms of mental illness. This interview is not about firing through a bunch of questions and answers, but more so to dig very deeply into James's philosophy 
and what he learned about himself through the process of recovering from PTSD and the depression that came with it. James speaks about the concept of post-traumatic growth and the resilient nature of the human spirit in this episode. James shines brightly, and he has made an enormous impact on those who he serves through his Resilient Leaders Foundation that he and his wife Kirsty created. They have devoted themselves to building an organization that provides people with the skills, resources, and structures to lead and collaborate with the purpose of strengthening communities and families, as well as individuals striving to lead more fulfilling and engaged lives. If you want to connect with James, check out the show notes of this episode. He and Kirsty would be happy to hear from you. I really do hope you enjoy this episode, and without further ado, my interview with James Greenshields. Okay, James, so thank you very much for taking the time. You know, I know you're down in Australia right now in the, uh, which area again did you just tell me? Byron Bay. Byron, Byron Bay. And I'm in Saudi Arabia, so we've got a bit of a time difference, and we are connected through a mutual friend, uh, Dale Sidebottom. I actually heard your podcast. Dale's a good buddy of mine, and we're always kind of sharing resources and ideas and people who we should interview, and you were his number one go-to recommendation that I um, bring you on the podcast because he understands a lot of the work that I'm doing, and I listened to the podcast, was profoundly moved by your honesty and vulnerability and uh, the work that you're presently doing to make a difference in the world. So I, I really do thank you for taking the time to be on my podcast series. You're very welcome. So I guess just to give the listeners heard a little bit about you in the intro, um, but I guess I, I just want to start with a little bit about you, where you're from, and, uh, you know, just early days, anything you want to say about uh, what life was like growing up for you? Yeah, well, I, I suppose what I like to say is that, that I, I grew up having a great family, a dad who loved me, a mum who loved me, um, you know, a sister who loved me. I grew up on a farm. I was uh, influenced heavily by the military because my father was a, a returned Vietnam veteran, um, but he was also a farmer and a chaplain, so chaplain to the Army, Police, Country Fire Authority, and then mum taught in a Roman Catholic school. So I, I love to say that I grew up in every single conservative paradigm there possibly was mm-hmm. and became an institutionalised moron by the age of 14. So then I go to uh, boarding school, an all-male boarding school, and then join the Australian Army. So, <laughs> so you can can see that there's a, there's a lot of conservative paradigms that I, that I went through. Where was, um, James, where was boarding school? Centre of Melbourne in okay. Victoria. Okay. Yeah. So we had a farm in Victoria. Funnily enough, our farm, the, the northern boundary fence, was right next to the Puckapunya military training area, which is the largest military training area in Victoria. Um, and there's a photo on mum's wall of armoured personnel carriers coming in the back gate to park behind our shearing shed from an organisation called B Squadron 2nd Cavalry Regiment. And then the next photo is 30 years later, me leading B Squadron 2nd Cavalry Regiment on its first wartime deployment into war, oh, wow. uh, into Iraq in 2006 and 7. So uh, lots of people would say, and you know, I used to understand this as well, um, 
I was living out my purpose in life, you know, which was it had a, a deep um, military bent. Now my work, you know, I've been out of the military 10 years um, in Iraq. Quite a few things went on, including being hit by a roadside bomb. But, um, you know, from post-Iraq, I developed post-traumatic stress, depression, uh, became suicidal. And I didn't become suicidal until I put my hand up until I actually asked for help. Now, I didn't ask help in the, in the military system. I was afraid that I would be judged as weak, um, that people wouldn't follow me, and that my career would be uh, adversely affected. So when everything in my household became too tense, like walking around in eggshells and, um, and my wife basically having enough, she basically said, I either get you help or I leave with the girls. Um, I, I sought help outside the system to someone that I felt would I resonated with and that I felt could help me move through it. Uh, and so in 18 short months, I call it 18 short months because some people never recover from PTSD, mm-hmm. I'd moved through post-traumatic stress to a point of recovery, although at a global level, the psychiatric fraternity still argue about whether or not you can recover uh, and also if there's a definition of recovery. And then after about two to three years, I moved into a thing called post-traumatic growth, which the psychiatric fraternity is still hum- confused about. Um, and then now um, I've moved past that. It does the the story doesn't define me. Actually, nothing, no label defines me anymore. Um, and a lot of our work we would refer to as called beyond resilience. So you know we run an organisation, a national charity in Australia called the Resilient Leaders Foundation. Um, we run everything from rites of passage for youth, which are like youth leadership programs um, done like in an odd way uh, through an initiation process um, right through to, you know, working with people and organisations to, to take themselves to the next level. And that could be, we don't label, so, you know, I just got off the phone to a firefighter who's, who's dealing with a lot of depression, there's underlying trauma there and he's suicidal. So, uh, but we don't label, just come saying that I don't want to be in the place I am in life and we'll help him understand that place better release the toxicity of the emotion, gain reconnect himself and to others and then start to get clarity about moving forward. Um, but all that, that he has to do, and so, you know, our, our humble thing is that we believe we don't heal anyone we just help people uh, utilise tools and skills and knowledge to take themselves from where they are and in a place that either they don't want to be or which is, is a good level, they want to take themselves to the next level. Right. The old adage is you can let go of everything that got you to good if you want to get to great because it only got you to good. Yeah, so I, I've got a, a few. There's there's so much there, you know. Like it's such an amazing, <laughs> it's such an amazing journey, James. And I think returning back to so there's just a couple anchor points that I want to return back to. And the first one is your your sense of service and and duty that you felt from a young age, you know, and mm. in in taking action to join the military, you obviously felt that that was your calling at that point in your life, right? And then uh, a lot of things happened. I guess I want to know more about Iraq, but before we get into Iraq, what I want to know is as a result of experiencing the roadside bomb and the the post-traumatic stress disorder, um, did you... um, kind of, you know, you, you talk about, cogn- not you, but the idea of cognitive dissonance, dissonance and being at odds, like feeling one thing, 
but having the reality of the other thing in our face. And did you, were you at odds with the once devotion that you had to the military to, as a result of being in the military and what you went through and experienced, was there some cognitive dissonance there uh, in coming out of the, the military? Well, it was one of the reasons why I came out of the military. Yeah. Because the cognitive dissonance was the militaries were espousing certain values and then illustrating a completely different, actually almost 180. So this is a, it's something that a lot of people don't quite understand. I didn't develop post-traumatic stress because of being hit by a roadside bomb. Mm-hmm. I developed post-traumatic stress because I had 110 lives vested under my command. Mm-hmm. And during my tour in Iraq, we worked out why we were really there. And it wasn't the mission that my government had told me. Mm-hmm. And my social justice bent, like the military archetypally for me, is is all about pure um, altruistic endeavour and protection. That's the, For me, that's what the, the military is. And it, it, in going to, you know, I was on the up and up. My career had been laid out in front of me. I um, was I just completed when the time I got out. I just completed promotion course to the next rank of lieutenant colonel. Uh, had been told the next five years of my life, as long as I did everything the military wanted for me to do. Uh, and then I turned around to the military and said, "Thank you, but now after 17 years, it's my time to leave." Why? Because uh, at that time, I actually had post-traumatic stress. No one in the military knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was excelling in the military, but get home and I'd you know, like I would crumble because the pressure cooker needed to uh, needed a, a pressure release valve, and I needed the safety some some form of safety environment to do that, and that was my home environment. And so the loved ones in my life got the worst of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, having to constantly lead soldiers into a place that you know we. I was lucky under my command we didn't lose anyone. I almost lost my own life. And to, to realise I almost left a, a fatherless daughter and a widow for what you don't sleep. And no, no person in Australia sleeps any safer than I almost died in Iraq. Now, I'm not bitter or there's, there's no malice or anything about me with that. And we've lost 41 soldiers in Afghanistan. There's nothing compared to what... Um, other nations like America, Canada, the UK have lost. Um, but it's an international relations fact when you actually break it down that these wars aren't making us safe. As a matter of fact, they're making us quite regularly. They're actually upping the ante. Um, so, cool, that's that's a different topic. I'm just specifically mm-hmm. talking about how that affected personally me. Um, and I had to go through this whole healing process of unwinding all expectation and what I thought I was doing to realise that, well, actually, for some people, I was a terrorist. And that, that took me a long time to comprehend because my heart was was invested in, you know, being the best best officer that I could be. But, you know, I didn't just want to be a soldier. I wanted to be an officer. I wanted to lead and I wanted to lead with purpose. Um, and to, to realise in the middle of my tour... And it wasn't just me; it was our whole command team. Um, that that we because we were getting conflicting messages, and so we had to go back to first principles and do a mission analysis about why we were truly there. And that's when we realised: hold on, we're not here because of what we've been told. There's a whole different agenda going on. 
So that changes our whole focus about what we've got to do. And that compromise, that really compromised my integrity. And that, that breach in integrity fractured, like literally fractured my soul and my framework. Because post-traumatic stress, in its essence, is a spiritual disorder. It's a, it's a fracture of the soul, which is why so many people never recover because that element is not dealt with. Um, in, a, in whatever way, whatever modality the, the person talks to, uh, talks about, um, yeah, that's, that's a really critical element to look at. And when you, when you talk about the post-traumatic stress disorder, um, were you, you were probably aware that you were uh, behaving differently around your family, but what were some of the first signs that you were experiencing where you knew, you know, something was not right? <laughs> well, here's the funny thing. I'd say funny now because I look back. I didn't realize a lot of my behavior. I was so numb to emotion back then because I'd suppressed it so much that cognitively, emotionally, and, and physically, because the that type of issue is it affects all three realms of personal elements of the person. I had created these um, control systems which helped me maintain some form of balance being out of balance. So I like to refer to trauma as no one's broken. They're just out of balance. All the systems have gone into overdrive in some way, shape, or form to try and keep them like a, you know, a ballerina just about to um, do a pirouette. Like I can do a bit of yoga, but I can't do a pirouette to save myself. And if I try to stand on a big toe, you know, I would yeah. come crashing down and, and to, to keep myself balanced would take a lot of energy. That's exactly what it's like to live through um, something like that. So, yeah. so there were there were many like occasions that um, like I remember I'd been home six months and well, I don't actually rewind. When I got home, my wife had been really looked after by our neighbours. Now, none of our neighbours were in the military. They were electricians, managers of companies in the, in the Darwin area, etc. And I was in a northern city in Darwin, in Australia called Darwin which is very different to just about any other Australian city, I must add. Yeah, but Darwin is, it's, it's cool. Um, anyway, uh, that's because that's where our military base was. And when I got back, Kirsty wanted to take me to a barbecue, um, at, at like a, a little party, and just say hi to all these neighbours that have, had heard of everything that was going on over there. They wanted to check in with me. They just wanted to be with me. Well, uh, it was one of those parties where all the women migrate down one end and all the blokes migrate up the other, and I'm standing there having a beer. Now, in those days, pre-Iraq, I used to be a six-pack of a party man. Like, I'd take a six-pack of beer and I'd drink that at the party. This, this time, I didn't even get through the neck of the bottle, and I felt myself just withdraw away from the person standing there and asking all these questions. The, the other part of me was stepping back, feeling really ashamed and guilty and just detaching. It's called disassociative behaviour. Yeah. Um, and it was just like I then put a glass wall up between me and him and there was like this split part of me that then really started to bed in. And I didn't understand what was happening, so all I did is good military bloke just push it down and just keep soldiering on. But my temper started to really start to fray. Uh, I used to get into arguments and I used to get impassioned arguments uh, and had a need to control things. 
my control tendencies went through the roof. One night, it all came to crashing in, and this is the third best night of my life. Uh, and I'll explain why. I mean, it doesn't sound that way, but it's, it's all about what this brings. And Abby was uh, Abby was about to. I'd been home from Iraq or almost like twelve months, and I was trying to bath Abby, and we're having a bit of fun, like you know, a dad and the daughter having a bit of fun in the bathroom. Well, Kirsty yells out dinner time, and I just said to Abs, "Can you put your toys in the basket?" She did what any two-year-old having fun with dad would do, and that's just take a time. But I went from zero to 1,000 degrees Celsius like in an instant, and I had to put the basket down. I had to get the hell out of there. And I stormed past Kirsty, and I remember saying something along the lines of, you go, actually, I'll tone down what I said. Um, You go and sort that kid out. I can't. I think I used a bit more colourful vernacular. But I I referred to my daughter as that. Mm-hmm. And in storming past, I went and I, I went and stood. We had this big full-length mirror in our bedroom and I, and I stood there in front of that mirror that night and I just looked at myself and I didn't recognise myself. And I actually had this conversation which went something along the lines of, who are you, man? You're not a husband. You're not a father. You're not a man. You can take bullets. You can take bombs. You can't even bath your own daughter. And that's the night I realised... I was in a place that I did not know. I felt completely isolated, alone, hollow, and every good thing in my life was starting to really, really fall apart. So I turned around and there's Kirsten standing silhouetted in the doorway. And that's when she had the the conversation and she put everything on the line and she said, I love you till you die and die. I can't do this anymore. Either we get you help, we get you help. Um, or I take the girls and leave. Now, the difference that Kirsty did to what a lot of partners uh, will often do is, is Kirsty didn't monocolor me. She didn't put me in cotton wool. She called me to action to own my stuff, and she said that, you know, I will love you, but I'm not coming to where you are. If we're going to be together, we're going to focus on a goal which is both of us being in a happy place because I'm not in a happy place, so don't come over to me. You're not in a happy place, so I'm not coming to you. We've got to come up here. And I'd lost all ability to set personal direction by then because the depression had really started to kick in. And that provided me a, a goal, and I I'm, I'm, can do that. If I've got a sense of direction, then, you know, I'm, <laughs> I've, I've trained myself so well I can go, right, that's where I'm heading. What did, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just want to ask you about Kirsty. Like, what did through the process of healing? What did she have to understand? Because it's a joint effort, going through post traumatic stress. So, what did she have to understand about you and what you were going through? Well, she had to understand herself. As much as understanding me, she had to understand how she brought this trauma into her life. She had to own her own part in the trauma and her own trauma and her own um, past uh, issues with her father, um, unresolved issues from a previous marriage where she basically married her father. Um, and so all these these wounds that had come to this crescendo, this, this absolute like um, cauldron of, of uh, wounds that were either deal with them now or run. And now she had a program, a subconscious program, of running. Yeah. This time she chose something different. 
And when I went to Iraq, before I went to Iraq, we weren't friends. Like, we, I, I refer to us as emotionally caged beings cohabitating. Yeah. And we just had, like, when I picked up command of the squadron, we had 10 months. I had to um, build the team. Like, I had to bring them all together and form them. I had to train them, and then I deployed with them. And, and then after I came home, they were immediately taken away from me and sent off to either go back into training for Iraq, go into Afghanistan or something else. So I lost all, all my connection to that team that I'd spent so long. But in that 10 months, what happened is I just invested everything. We just had a baby. We just had my firstborn daughter, Abby. And I didn't know how to be a father. I was scared of being a father. What was I great at? I was great at being a military officer. So I just threw myself into that. But I also subconsciously knew what was coming, you know, what was going to happen in Iraq. And so that all built over 10 months. So I deployed in November 2006. Abby was 10 months old. And I missed all the firsts, the first words, the first speak, the first steps and the first birthday and all that. Um, And funnily enough, well, not funny enough, but interestingly enough, when Abby was seven... I got the opportunity to help her heal her wound of abandonment because of me leaving her for Iraq. And the only reason why I had the ability to help her heal is because I put my hand up when I was in such a bad place, chose not to take my own life, chose to heal and then work out how to not only help myself but help others heal. So then I was given the gift of of helping my daughter through this abandonment issue, which I had been part of causing. And, and I say that, part of because she had to choose the yeah. wound yeah. as well. And that's that's deeply rooted in Gabor, Dr. Gabor Mate's work and, and childhood trauma. And, and, and what he says is so early in a child's life, they experience trauma and it reveals itself in, in different ways. And that's exactly what you're describing in that moment and some people might not think that a child would be able to uh, would experience trauma in in that way but in your case you recognized it and you were able to to help her through that right you know, both my daughters experienced trauma because it's so so even to back uh, his work uh, he's an amazing man if people haven't seen him please um, yeah, research him he's incredible but uh, the, one of the things with my other daughter was I was in the height of anger when Penny my second born was in utero so in Kirsty's tummy and there was an, uh, a whole series of incidents but one really stands out um, we were in the kitchen in Darwin I just got home as I said, my whole combat team had been taken away from me and I'd been told to go up and sort out all the administrative nightmare that had manifested over the time we'd been away. So I felt pointless in this job. I'm feeling isolated. Uh, and I get home and Kirsty says, how's your day? And I, and I don't know how it swung, but I turned to her and I, and I yelled at her and I said, don't take their side. And she goes, why are you angry? And I just snapped and I put my fist through a cupboard and I screamed, I'm not angry. Now, I'm cleaning my language up extensively for this podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> there was an incredible amount of rage that came out. Yeah. 
Now, Kirsty stood there and just looked at me. The issue was my two-year-old daughter, Abigail, was standing two metres from me with eyes like dinner plates, yeah. and Penny was in Kirsty's tummy. So at the age of four, once I'd moved through post-traumatic stress, when I'd, I'd come back to understanding my own personal boundaries and, and realising, you know, how I can uh, exercise my own boundaries, and Penny does something which I feel a boundary needs to be exercised, like get on a beautiful new computer, take a big permanent marker and, and just use it as a drawing pad, yeah. you know, as children tend to do, yeah. uh, that's... that's that's not respectful of my property or someone else's property. So I'm going to explain that that's not the thing to do. I don't need to go to 10 on the Richter scale like I would have when I had post-traumatic stress. I can amp up it up to, you know, 0.5 on the Richter scale and say, yeah, pen, pen, do we act respectively? And when I just amp it up a little bit, she would run to her bedroom, adopt the fetal position and start to shake just like this. Right. She was going back in utero. Yeah. And yeah. so it took us... Well, first, the first step that I had to do was go inside and heal my wound of guilt and shame because of my realisation of what was occurring because that then enabled me to open myself up to being vulnerable with Penny and help her through anger and, and a relationship with anger. And that took us about three to four months of bringing, constantly working with her and bringing her through that to the place where, you know, she can, can be and... Um, she was seven. She's now 11. She was seven when she walked out after three weeks of being a recalcitrant, like not being that nice around um, people. And one big boundary I have is your mother is to be respected. She brought you into the world. I don't care about anything else. Your mother is sacrosanct. She mm. must be respected. Now, I obviously, as a, as a man who um, believes that Kirsty is, I know, I don't believe it, I know Kirsty's incredibly powerful, I, I've learned balance in stepping in and over the top when Kirsty can exercise her own boundaries. But that's that's one boundary in which I will insist on. Um, but by the age of seven, Penny comes up to me after three weeks of being a bit annoying and uh, a lot annoying. Uh, and she goes, Dad, can you help me? And I said, I can, but what do you need help with? And she says, I, I need to let go of some anger. I said, awesome, gorgeous. I can do that. So let's go. What would you like to do? She says, can we do an anger session? I said, yeah, certainly. And then it dawned on me and I realised she had an incredible emotional literacy for a seven-year-old. And I thought, what happens if we put a video out about this? Now, that video we did up that night has been seen by about 170,000 people worldwide. Wow. And it's, it, it's Penny being so real and open and honest about anger and, you know, just... I didn't film her releasing it out of respect to her. I filmed, it, like, the conversation up to it and then post where, you know, she's in this different space and there's love surrounding her. Um, and that only occur occurred because I allowed myself to, again, move through the shame and guilt and then utilise skills and, and have the courage to utilise skills with my daughter um, that helped her and me because it was a mutual healing journey. Yeah, it's, it's the same. It's been a mutual healing journey from with Kirsty and myself, with Abby and myself, with Penny and myself, right. all of us. And and moving it like when you think about the work that you're doing right now, uh, I'd love to for people to hear more about the Resilient Leaders Foundation and and having gone through your own experiences and working on healing self, 
in order to heal relationships, in order to help others. Um, what was your, I, I guess, motivation and what were the, the building blocks that you put in place? Just talk about the Resilient Leaders Foundation and how it came to uh, fruition. By accident. Uh, so I, I started my healing journey and I, was, I knew I was in a dark place and I kept going though. Was sometimes there was two steps forward, five steps back. But I always said to Kirsty, I commit to making a step. I can't guarantee it will always be forward, but I will commit to making a step. And over time, like sometimes it was just constantly five steps back in a week. It was like really shattering. Like I said at the start, I went suicidal after putting my hand up to ask for help. And I was asked today why this occurs. Because a, a guy said, yes, he's gone through a lot. He's tried a lot, a lot of things. And he's come to me absolutely exhausted. Uh, and it's just, why is, why is this? Because when our self-awareness goes up, our self-trust goes straight down. Because we become aware of what we've actually been doing. And if we don't have a grounded sense of self-esteem, which is what I didn't get as a child, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't get a grounded sense of self-esteem, even though my dad was a, you know, he had major anger issues. Um, if I didn't want him in the cattle yards, give me two minutes and I'd push every button I needed to, which would eject him in a fit of rage and I wouldn't see him for a day. Uh, and I told my mum at the age of 16 to leave the asshole. Yeah. Probably, you know, I didn't really... But, but mum and dad were a loving couple until dad's passing day in 2003. And when he passed, I was his best mate. But that doesn't mean to say that we hadn't had, there was a lot of underlying issues that were never solved. So when my mother rings me in 2016 and says, it's a pity that your father wasn't here when you got back from Iraq, out of my mouth came, if he was, I never would have recovered. Because you will only recover as far as the tribe will let you recover. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, and this is what I've found in my journey, I had to step away from my tribe to actually, which included the military. If I had stayed in the military, I would not have recovered. Um, so I had to step out of the military and and I didn't realise this at the time. This is w- where I was naturally led. So when I'm starting this process, all of a sudden people start coming up to me and saying, James, can I have a moment of your time? I said, yeah. Uh, what's up? How can I help? Well, we just, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, trauma and stuff like that. And I said, yeah. And they said, can you help me with it? And I said, No. Have you seen how much crap that's going on with me? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struggling through my own backyard here. And they said, that's exactly why we want to talk to you because you seem to be negotiating this quite well. And that those conversations started to be more and more and I started to realise this. And now I'm the type of person who looks into the world and reads symbols. If a magpie passes my path in a certain way, a magpie is an Australian bird of black and white, it's all about yin and yang. It's, it's, it's a metaphysical meaning of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always ask myself, hmm, am I in balance in this moment? So these, these messages of the life started to come thick and fast. And then I mentioned to the guy who led the, the, um, the organisation that uh, was helping me on this path that I was going to get out. And he said, why don't you come work with me? And I ended up, after 18 months from being dragged to this emotional intelligence workshop by Kirsty kicking and screaming, 18 months later, I'm the front man of it um, because, I, he, as he said, mate, you're, you're living testament that if someone commits to themselves and uses this stuff, 
they can go from an nth degree example, like a really bad place, to much, much better place. Can I ask you a so, question, James? I just want to ask you a question about that. Is that you know a lot of work in positive psychology? Uh, have you ever heard of Dr. Martin Seligman? Yeah. 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 So a lot of the the work, and he is being being a clinical psychologist for decades, trying to figure out why people are so screwed up, getting so tired of looking at what's wrong with people, to looking at what's actually right with people. So what yeah. I want to ask you was, my feeling, and I don't know you. I mean, we're speaking for the first time, but my feeling is that you already had some strengths within yourself that allowed you to then shine not shine in that moment maybe shine's the wrong word but to shine within and then yep. to to be there for others and to to be that beacon of hope that you didn't recognize in yourself but what were some of the potential strengths that you had already possessed internally that allowed you to flourish in that moment even though you might not have thought you were flourishing other people saw something in you so what were some of those things Mate, that is a golden one observation and second question. Um, one of the funniest was smack bang on my forehead, and I never realised it. And what I mean by that is in the military we have this badge that, that's associated with your unit. Um, and mine was the 2nd Cavalry Regiment, and the, the um, badge of the 2nd Cavalry Regiment is an eagle um, with its wings flared with a, a lance um, and a banner flying off it. And on that banner, it has the word courage. And our mascot is the wedge-tailed eagle, which the Australian Indigenous um, see as the connection to spirit, uh, to the divine, in whatever sense that is for a person. And then there's this courage. And the wedge-tailed eagle can see over two kilometres. And it's, the, it's a massive bird of prey that we've got here in Australia. So uh, I, I wore that on my forehead for my military career. As a young person what I tried to do was prove myself courageous for I thought myself a coward. I charged down two-ton bulls in the cattle yards and Dad would, like, go white. And he'd, after it, he'd go, you got the job done, but can I suggest another way? Yeah. And I didn't care. I got the job done and I, I felt a hero. In archetypal psychology, I was going through the hero complex, yeah, yeah. requiring external validation and external acknowledgement constantly doing it for all the external praise. And if that praise didn't come or it came in a way which I couldn't receive it, then I felt gutted and hollow. And so, you know, the transition from hero to warrior is obviously the, the flip from the external to the internal. I went to war a hero. I didn't turn into a warrior until my darkest days when Dad one day said to me, it was about eight, and we were out the back of the property and we're feeding out a bunch of Angus cattle, so big black cattle, and they're behind the ute. And he stopped for a moment and he looks off into the bush and he goes, there's my God. And I, I didn't have the spiritual maturity to understand what he said, but luckily I shut up. And he paused and he looked down at me and he said, but you've got to go and find your own. Oh, wow. I remembered that conversation on my darkest day, sitting on the couch thinking I need to take my own life. And so I'd been seeking courage constantly. I'd been trying to prove myself not a coward. And I did it in Iraq all the time. I always had to lead from the front. Why did I get hit by the bomb? One of the reasons was because I had to lead from the front. So my, I put myself escalated risk. 
constantly, even as the leader. And lots of people around me saying, boss, why do you always go out in the front? My one response, categorical response was, I send people outside on my order every day when I'm telling them to lead from the front, I must do the same. It, it didn't actually understand that underneath, I, I didn't have the self-esteem or self-confidence. So what I believed was I needed to be seen, oops, I, I needed to be seen as, uh, as competent and capable. So the way that that translated into my head is that all I have to be seen is dedicated and, and dedicated means that I'm obviously competent. Obviously, it doesn't. Yeah. There's a logical mismatch there. But that was just the, the subconscious process. So courage was the biggest thing because the biggest demons I've ever faced in life were not on a battlefield. They were my internal battlefield. And the reason why we work now beyond resilience is because resilience requires an adversary. Just look at the definition of resilience. It's the, the capability to bounce back or to weather a storm. If I'm bouncing back, I need something to hit me first that I can bounce back from, or I need a storm for which I need to transcend. Now, you just look at the current societal issue at the moment. You know, people in, and as you are in, you know, in the middle of the desert in lockdown, um, but people are feeling you know, isolated. We call it in Australia social distancing. Yeah. Um, and all, all this stuff's happening. So people are feeling isolated. They've been told to stop. They've been sent home. Lots of people lose it In some way, shape or form, for a lot of people, this can be a catastrophe in which, therefore, people are saying we need to be resilient. We need to find what resilience is. You will need to find what resilience is if you look at this as a catastrophe. I go back to my point. I've been hit by a roadside bomb, fourth best day of my life because it made me wake up to what my priorities were in life. And I live that now. So there's actually situation no change for me in this situation. I don't see anything to fight against because I see this as the natural flow of life. There is, there is, for anything needs to, like, when an ecosystem grows to a certain point, it will actually no longer be able to evolve. It needs to collapse. The phoenix being born from the ashes. Um, we've just gone through the Easter period. The Easter period... Uh, mythologically is it's one of the biggest um, myths of initiation that can possibly be if you go down that mythological route. So, you know, and it is born from the ashes. Christ died on Golgotha on Good Friday and, and was born again uh, and ascended. So, uh, and we even use that term when someone connects deeply in, goes through a death within themselves to come to this point of new life. Um, and a new connection to Christ or to, to whoever and whatever belief system um, they actually find themselves. So we, we're constantly using this without realising the day-to-day utility of this, which is, is right now. If you choose, there's nothing to be resilient against. It's coming to centre and answering three questions. Who am I? Beyond label. You know, I used to think that I was Major James... Sorry, Major 3805476, James Malcolm Greenshields ASC. I even had a number to it. And then when I got out of the military and I hung the uniform up, who am I without the uniform? And so I had to keep asking that question. As I said to someone today, for 10 years I've been asking that question. Every single time I get a different answer. It's not that I don't know, but contextually it's an experiential answer. 
And it's an answer in which if you ask me, I can give you words, but they don't count for the actual experience, which is a personified thing. And when I do that and come from that place of beingness, I can then go, okay, now what's my next step? And I'll often talk to people about those three questions. Where am I? Where do I want to go? What's my next step? Now, sometimes you'll never know what you, where you want to go. So it's where am I? Okay, I don't necessarily want to be in this place. What's my next step? What, what step was within my control? My thoughts, my words, my deeds. They're the only things I can control in life. No one can control them if I understand that they are mine. I can let people influence them, but when I truly understand them and I work with them, then I can actually become the master of my faith, the captain of my soul. You know, great words by William Henley but, and really powerful words, but how do I live them in this moment? The old adage of um, creating the vision, well, when you're in turbulent times of chaos, vision's going to be very, very hard to pin down because there is so many uncertain factors. But so I don't say that RLF or, or Resilient Leaders Foundation or the work that I do is, is a job anymore. I know it is a vocation. And a vocation used to be reserved for, for people of the cloth because it has a sacredness to it. You look at a carpenter, a carpenter who, you know, if you had three builders down in the local Byron Bay workplaces, and you go up to one bloke and you say, mate, what are you doing? And he's building someone's, you know, building a, a place for someone. And he turns to you and you're probably an Australian uh, builder and you ask him a question like that, you'll probably get a few swear words thrown at you about how stupid the bloody question is. But so he turns to you and says, I'm building a house, mate. What do you think, you know? You go to the next person and the next person says, he takes a breath and he looks back and he says, I'm building a home. And then you go to the next person and they, and they say, I'm building someone's palace, someone's future. Now, out of those three people, who's more connected to what they do? Yeah, definitely the third. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So who are you going to get to build your palace home? Who are you going to get to build? You, you want, especially if you're you know, putting your life savings into it, you want someone who is going to put that energy into actually building. Now, working with like uh, a bunch of plumbers one day, I, I made mention to them, these young guys, they're coming and they had a um, really low level of commitment to work, low level of standard. That was a big issue within the plumbing or company that they had. And um, they were having to keep going back and finishing off stuff and, and, you know, keep cleaning up after their mess. And so my point to them was imagine your mum, throw mum and dad throw all their life savings into this house that you are currently going around and putting the plumbing finishing touches on, on the ensuite. And your mum comes in and it's her first morning in her new home, the home that she's setting herself up for the rest of your life, and she walks in there, she turns on the shower, and all of a sudden the whole plumbing system falls down on her. How is she going to feel? Obviously, bad. What happens if she goes in there and everything works perfectly? How is she going to feel? Good. Awesome. It's not just your mum. The person you're building a house for is someone's mum. Now, you talk to especially young men, generally that will resonate. You've got to find the, the point of resonance with mm-hmm. them. But they got it. And funnily enough, once that became the ethos and they started doing a few other things, the, the actual financials went through the roof. They didn't have to go back and fix up stuff. They started to get more referrals. 
blah, 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 blah. All the economics sorted themselves out. Why? Because they realise they're building someone's palace. So it's not, it's not esoteric um, woo-woo stuff. There's practical applications on a daily basis for understanding who I am and why I'm engaging in this, in this uh, method of professional expression. Which is self-value as well. Exactly. And yeah. Martin Seligman talks about it in meaning and, and, and he's basis of positive psychology. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, Viktor Frankl before him in his amazing book, Man's Search for Meaning, in my darkest day I was reading this book and there's this line, suffering ceases to be suffering when meaning is found. Mm-hmm. And I knew in that moment what my life was therefore dedicated to then, finding meaning. So, and can that, I- I, I want to ask you about that because that that to me is like when you're doing work for others such as you are such as the work that you're doing you know when I think of myself as an educator and everything that I do is about trying to help teachers create the blueprint to differentiate in order to meet the needs of all their learners right because old school education is this is what you have to learn. Everybody has to learn the same thing, but we know that doesn't work, right? So we have to personalize learning in a way so that each learner can flourish in their own way, whatever way that is. So when you look at the work that you're doing with the Resilient Leaders Foundation and you get a group of men in the bush, because I know that you, you do these, these trips to the bush for four days, um, how do you, because you have a general framework for what you do, you have a structure for what you do, but how do you personalize and differentiate based on the experiences that some of the people have gone through? Again, awesome question. Uh, and firstly, can I note your philosophy of, of learning? It's, it's awesome. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's, I know there's a shift occurring, but it's certainly, um, it's, at the moment, it's still the, uh, the point of difference. Yeah. It's, it's not the norm. Um, my belief, and I tell everyone at the start of any workshop, two things. Firstly, I will not teach you anything. I will help you remember something. For that aha moment that a person gets is not me teaching it. It's me helping them remember something. And secondly, um, in the words of the best psychologist, in my humble opinion, that has ever walked the face of the planet, who did so two and a half thousand years ago under the name Siddhartha Gautama, now known as Lord Buddha, he said, and he was an enlightened being, so he said, never believe a single word I say unless you know it true in your own heart. Now, if he's an enlightened being, he's got something going for him, so (laughs) I might argue with him, but I completely resonate with that. But it's come... I had to emotionally purify myself. I had to go in and, and have a look at those demons. And in the day, back in the day, man, I fought. I fought my demons big time, you know. And I, that became, I became addicted to the fight. I became addicted to three-hour meditations in a stress position just so I had to go into my breath and I had to keep going into the emotion and emotion and emotion. I, and Kirsty one day turns to me and goes, when are you going to realise that you might have done enough work? that you can let the negativity go and actually look at the blessing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, no, 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 no. I've got to go and do the work, you know, because before I, I didn't do the work and I ignored it and I suppressed, I've got to go and do the work. It, 
she just sat there and goes, yeah, whatever. And knew that in my own time, I would realise it. And that's what I did. So coming back to your point, how do we personify? How do we personalise it? I, I personally believe so many people, us as, as, as a society, Western society, have lost the art of storytelling. Because by gifting a story, it means someone can take their own meaning from that story, which may be very different to everyone else around. And when we come from a place of non-judgment, a place that says, uh, a place of true diversity where we can really live and understand, I mean, you live in in an amazing place uh, over in, in Arabia and you know, there is an incredibly distinct and different view on a world view, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, and who's to say they're wrong? And who's to say I'm right? Yeah. And who's to say anyone else is wrong or right? Or who's to say either of us are wrong or right? And coming to this unified place, well, how do we do that? Let other people take what they get from. And so we don't, we say we'll help you understand stuff, but how you understand that is, is, and how you therefore integrate it. I'm not, I'm not worried about the system that I've developed for four days out bush, or any other the the workshops that I run in organisations or when people do our programs. The system looks after itself. I'm more interested in the week afterwards, the two weeks, three weeks, and the rest of the time. Where have we done? Have we set it up so that you have an opportunity? to integrate that as best, integrate the learnings as best as possible and then have the support to that integration afterwards. Because in my belief, the difference between knowledge and wisdom is experience, experiential learning. And I see that as the bridge. So I'll never give anyone wisdom. I'll give them knowledge from, from a place of possible wisdom because I've been there and I've gone into this. I'll never ask anyone in one of my workshops to do something I haven't done myself. You know, and that that was a character trait which served me as a young man and served me in the military. I never asked anyone to do something that I hadn't done myself. And my soldiers knew that. And so they followed me accordingly. But I've had some incredibly humbling reports after getting out of the military from some of my soldiers who served with me in in Iraq, and they said, "Boss, loved you in the military. Love you even more now. Congratulations!" Yeah, and cool. I, that that's brought me to tears. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you think of because what you said was in moving forward forward after the workshops, and and that's the key, I think, too, is that you know anybody can go and deliver a workshop, can go and drop in and deliver a three day experience, and then move on do another one, repeat the exact same thing. They got this formula down. But the really good stuff comes from the impact that that workshop has afterwards. And as you said, you're interested in the trajectory of those people when they leave your workshops. You know, a week down the road, three weeks down the road. But when you're not there, just like when a good teacher can't be there for the student, there is so much research right now that shows the most powerful thing in teaching and learning is timely feedback. So that it's no longer, oh, you got an A on the test, well done. That means nothing. What actually has the deepest impact is timely feedback in the moment of learning, right? 
So Mm -hmm. the fact that you, maybe you're there virtually for them, but there'll be times when you cannot be there for them after the workshop. So in terms of timely, timely feedback, what do you suggest to them in those moments um, to know that they're on the right track when they have to, I call it that, um, you know, I, I heard the term once, a moral way station. You know, you're driving down the freeway and you got to pull off to, a, to weigh, you know, the trucks get weighed. It's that mm-hmm. idea of the moral way station. And that comes, I think, from Albert Bandura. He talked about that a lot. So how do you get them to kind of pull off and, and self-weigh and self-check and be critically reflective when you're not there for them and somebody else might not be there for them? What do they need to do in that moment to know if they're on the right track? Awesome. So we run a, a program, it's a 12-month program called Masters in Harmonic Leadership. Um, just a, a thing about harmonics. Um, we don't believe in survival anymore because and in sustainability. I've removed sustainability from all our lexicon because sustainability is based in a survival mentality. Harmonics see the natural flow of life, the ebbs and flows of the tide, the life cycles, which include birth and death. Uh, and so if we're to thrive, we need to understand harmonics, not sustainability. Sustainability is still oh, I just need enough to get me to the next level and to just keep being able to survive. And if we, our next phase, and hopefully this has been the birth, the pain of the present moment must exceed any perceived pain that change will bring for an individual, a family or an organisation or culture to change. That immediate pain must be higher, must go over and tip over the tipping point for that shift to occur. Hopefully we're right there. So what what our um, on masters of harmonic leadership? There's three assessment criteria. You must be confident, capable, and credible in being a harmonic leader. But here's here's the thing: the underlying philosophy of all our work is that we control three things: our thoughts, our words, our deeds. I don't control yours. You don't control mine but you're a good bloke and I really want to get to know you and like you and stuff like this, so I want you, you know, all of a sudden I'm starting to worry about what you're thinking of me and we we spiral down that. No, I'm allowing you to overly influence my thoughts, my words, my deeds because of an attachment to a need for you to like me. So when I realise I control my thoughts, my words, my deeds, I bring my power back, I empower myself. So we use first language, first person language, not third person language. So... For me to be confident, capable, and credible, what do I need to be a harmonic leader? Now, the thing is, Kirsty and I are not going to be standing next to them when they're doing their harmonic leading out yeah. there in the world. Yeah. So it's actually, I say, say to them up front, I cannot assess you. I can help you um, breed a level of accountability, personal accountability within yourself so that you know that answer of confident, capable, and credible. And we also help them understand that most of the time... Most people, because of humility, will actually feel they're not ready, but they actually are, and that's the time to step up and get out, get out and do stuff. But so the way station has to be internal. Mm -hmm. And so quite regularly, Kirsten and I will have people that um, will text us or whatever, can I have an immediate chat? We'll have an immediate chat. And I'll just feel into it right now. And I know they have absolutely everything they need in this moment to ask themselves the questions to get their answer. So sometimes we won't respond. 
mm-hmm. and we'll respond 24 hours later. We'll say, hey, you got your text, how you going? Or if I do respond, more often than not, I'm responding with a series of questions. They're wanting to get on the phone. They're wanting to get on the phone. I'll throw a series of questions at them. And they might get really, really annoyed at me. And so which I say, go and get a punching bag, print out my face and put my face in the punching bag mm-hmm. and just deal with the anger at me. Once you deal with that, let's come back and have an adult conversation. Mm-hmm. Not quite that way, but, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'll fire them a series of questions because my point is I've got a lot of answers for my questions. But as a facilitator of helping you take yourself to the next level to heal your own wounds, everyone's been traumatised. Everyone's a veteran of something in their life. Go back to, to Mato's work. Um, my work is to help you understand the questions to ask. So my job is to listen intently, to feel intently, and to, to if ready, if necessary, ask you a question because that will then assist you realise. And in society, my humble belief is people have lost the ability to answer a question if you just talk to them and they'll often say i don't know when they're doing that they're regressing to about the age of four when they learnt that if they said i don't know to their parents or their teachers or whoever everything would be given to them so they literally psychologically regress so the first point is say uh, we don't accept that if you give that that answer in any of our workshops it's hilarious because everyone knows oh hold on where's this gonna go because no one's accepting that answer and we, we then next like, we follow straight up with so okay understand so if you were to know, what would you say? And we will not answer their question. And if they're really quick, they might come at us from a whole different heap of angles. And what they're simply trying to do is train us to, to answer their questions. No, we're not playing that game. So our constant way station is that ability not only to answer a question but to ask the question. Mm. And why did this happen to me is not the right question. It's actually probably the most powerless question you can ask. Where am I? Who am I? What's my next step? These In a dark place, these are truly powerful questions to ask. Mm-hmm. And when we get used to asking these questions, all of a sudden we might not get the answer straight up, but then the answers start to come and we, we'll get the answer and we won't trust it because our level of self-trust is low because of their past. But over time we start to, again, trust that inner knowing. And we move from that. I, I like to say life's a series of three stages. Initially, we need hope, hope that there will be a saviour. And then that hope leads us to action. And through action, we start to breed a little trust in ourselves, which takes us into this phase of faith. And we start to have more faith with us. But faith's still a dance between the, exter- uh, the external and the internal. And when a person comes to the place like Mother Teresa or, or some other anointed saint, they come to this place of a deep inner knowing and knowing that where they are is perfect in this moment. You know, if you've got a Christian bent, for instance, you're right now and you're saying this is a really bad situation, you're actually telling God that he's totally stuffed. Mm. I always, I love when I think about it in that way. Instead of, and we're judging with not all the situation. We don't understand everything. So how can we judge if we elevate ourselves away from judgment to a point of analyse to understand instead of analyse to judge, then what we're doing is we're putting ourselves into this, this, this place. And one of my principles is wonder because if I go into the world with wonder, wonder what's, wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Wonder what 
what's playing out here? And that allows me to not emotionally get attached to a situation where I would require resilience because of that emotional engagement. But I can sit back and I can be observant and I can explore as opposed to frantically search. And that's that's an inquiring mindset, an inquiry mindset, and that's huge. And 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 as I heard you kind of talk about the moral way station, I think of you know, the power of optimism and optimism can be highly overrated. People think they're either an optimist or a pessimist and optimism is all about just positive fluffy thinking, but that's bullshit because really what optimism is, is it's the ability to know that there are things you can't control and there are things you can control, right? And that nothing is stable, you know? Everything is unstable, right? There's nothing concrete that, that you, if you know that you can control what you can control, that's actually a very optimistic point of view. And that last one is um, internal or, or global versus local. So that it, it goes back to that control thing. And local is like it's within your control again, internal versus external. And that's what you're describing. And, and it's the, the connection between our our words, our actions, and our thoughts, when we are misaligned, we know it. We feel yeah. it in our heart. And what you're describing in the work is really self-actualization through the process of asking yourselves the right questions because you have the answers within. You are eternally magnificent within, and you have the answers within. You have the internal resources, right? Right. Totally. And, and so it's such a humanistic, you know, positive way to really tap into people's inner curiosity and inner strength and just reveal it through the structure. It sounds like you help to reveal it through the structure of, of your workshops and the way you deliver them. Totally. And the other thing that we say is for a society which unfortunately has lost the ability to grieve, um, we, we, we're not an emotionally literate society anymore. And that has a large-scale ramifications to when something like our present-day situation has occurred, it causes all these emotions. It, from, you know, my mum my just had a 70th birthday and we weren't able to get there. Uh, and so we could feel a sense of loss about that. There, um, you know, my father died when I was only 29 and... A whole stage of my life, I missed being able to be with him and and receive his guidance. Now, if I frame my whole mindset that uh, that's a whole negative thing, I'll go through loss. And so I didn't grieve for my father, even though I organised his funeral and everything like that. There was military there, there was the fire brigade there, there was the police there, there was the farming community. The street was lined. It was a, a dual carriageway and it was lined for 500 metres as we moved Dad's casket up. And there was the, the clergy as well. And I'll give you the big tip. The hardest to organise out of all of them were the bloody clergy. There's about 150 of them in all their different regalia. So, and, and I organised all of that. And the next day, after he got put in his, uh, you know, cremated, went straight out bush on a military exercise. All right, funeral's done. You know, I've grieved, haven't I? No. So I didn't understand grieve, grieving and, and actually um, going through the whole grief process until I actually went through my darkest days of post-traumatic stress and then into the recovery journey. 
and the Maori, the, sorry, the Maori from New Zealand, Aotearoa, which is, is, is just over the Tasman Sea from us, they've got this beautiful thing called the tangi, which is, a, I think it's about a six-stage grieving process, and they'll bring the casket to their um, um, uh, marae, which is their, their family place, and they, everyone will come from all over the place, and the tangi starts, and if they get up to stage three and then new people arrive, they have to go back to stage one, but there's no annoyance at it there's this love and celebration, hey, let's go, and they start again. And there's, and it might happen 15 times in the day. And they might, you know, someone, you know, with a, a Western point of view would go, oh, bloody hell, can everyone just arrive on time so we can get this bloody thing over? There's none of that. Yeah. It's this massive celebration and it's this process. Now, that might actually go for 12 months. And for a, as a widow, uh, within this process, within this ceremony and this ritual, it is okay if she chooses to end her life, oh, wow. to take her own life. It is okay, and it will be honoured in its own way. Their understanding of life and death is so much different, and and one of our biggest issues in society is we fear death so much. And and you know you're in the Middle East, and Middle East people have a very different take on life and death. <laughs> so I found out firsthand. <laughs> so if we if if we don't realise life is full of the whole heap of deaths and death is is not the opposite of life. Life is not the opposite of death. Birth is. And so this whole birth-death cycle happen and will go through. It's a natural process. So when we understand that and we come back to grief, grief is a process, not an emotion. It's a process that allows for the, the holding of space to experience all these different emotions in an appropriate way, to express them appropriately, not inappropriately, mm-hmm. where someone is hurt, undermined or demeaned in any way. But this emotion flows and that water flows and it buds the seed for the next thing. The next thing germinates. And whatever that is, like my father and I are, are closer now than we ever were when he was alive. Mm-hmm. And we, he passed when I was best mates with him because of my healing journey coming through now. So this this whole process, and that's what it is, it's, it's a process. And if we can if we can look at that and see, you know, um, that come back to the point, a beautiful point about optimism and pessimism, is judgment says this is a good thing or bad thing. So, and if you hear a lot of people's worldview, they'll say, you know, well, it's just that, um, well, at the moment, I've got some elephants upstairs. Don't worry about that's just my daughter's yeah. playing with the dog. But um, they'll say, you know, life's not perfect, is it? You've got to accept that. Well, my point to that point is, well, who's to say life's not perfect right now? And I just haven't seen exactly if I've got that negative mindset or that um, that yeah that negativity. Yeah. I just haven't allowed myself to see the positivity in it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great way to to look at it. And, and again, it's so deeply rooted in in positive psychology. And there's so much research to uh, to prove that when we actually look at what's working well, the three W's, what went well, it can have a profound impact on creating that shift that we need um, within us. You know, to to uh, really tap into what's actually working in our life, and it can change our perspective and. The one thing I want to say, you know, as we segue towards the end, it's, it's looking at that idea of, of trauma and 
one of the things, you know, and I told you I wanted to ask about the post-traumatic stress disorder because I had uh, gone through it myself in my accident in Cambodia and, and I was almost killed in an accident and I knew for certain that I was going through post-traumatic stress disorder, especially, you know, the year or two after the accident. And I was waking up to the sound of broken glass a lot. And I had put my hand through a bus window and uh, severed the the artery. And I can still go back to that moment in an instant and think of what it felt like in that first minute after I was trying to stop the bleeding just by hanging on to my wrist. And it was pointless, just... The blood loss was intense. But waking up to the sound of broken glass, and then that kind of disappeared. And I thought, oh, I'm, it's gone. It's done. Maybe I've just dealt emotionally with it. And, but it, it always kind of surfaces here and there, depending on what's happening in my life. And, and since this COVID-19, I feel like I have good coping skills. I'm dealing with it in a, in a very healthy way. And we're in a good place as a family. We're talking about our, our feelings and, you know, having important discussions. But it's been about the last two or three weeks where not every night, but um, I'm awakened by really scary thoughts just on the cusp of sleep. And it happened a couple nights and I was like, shit, why did that happen? You know, and then I would get back to sleep, but then it would happen again the next night. And it's not even the same, the same thoughts, uh, dark thoughts that are waking me up. It's just random, dark, really dark thoughts. And I know that that's post-traumatic stress disorder revealing itself subconsciously. So yep. what is your strategy that you can share with listeners who might be experiencing um, relived trauma in this moment? Um, what are some some things you can say to them or ask them to think about? Again, awesome question. Um, one of the big issues that I have with uh, a lot of the present-day practices around trauma is, um, you know, I've worked a lot with people who have gone through exposure therapy, which is an attempt to relive the incident to um, develop a... Um, a level of tolerance to the actual situation. The issue with that is you're betting the trauma into the subconscious even more. So trauma occurs within the subconscious. The, the language of the subconscious is images, and I, I use my hand like this because it's a five-century image. It's not just the hand going through the glass, but it's the sound, of, isn't it? It's the sound that occurs. It's the feeling of, of it. it. It's all there. So sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. It's a five-century image. Now, wrapped with that, and this is key, is the emotion. The emotion, and, and this, is, this is how memories form. So memory embeds into the subconscious. And so the emotion that wraps onto the image will be positive, negative, or neutral. Now, our ability to recall, it's referred to as a trans-derivational search. When we go back to a certain memory and we go, like the Dewey reference system in the library where you pulled out that drawer with all the cards. Well, our mind does it, and we can go right back 30, 40 years to a card and pull it out. But we do that in a nanosecond. How do we do that? Well, the emotion is actually the draw card. That which the most intense emotion, which will often be for a person who's been traumatised, negative, then if one of those senses gets triggered, that that emotion will go whooper and cause a, a response. Now, you don't... You could be a lady who was raped five years ago, walk down the street and smell the aftershave of your rapist and not realise why you're having a panic attack 
in the fetal position on the pavement and no one else around you will understand either. Now, smell, interestingly enough, and I'll, I'll probably, did you, do you have a smell that takes you back to the bus? Is, do you I, remember the smell? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's that, um, it's the, I think the heat, because I think the weather had just changed. It happened in May and it was a really yep. hot morning. And it was yep. like that blast of getting out of the air-conditioned bus that I was in to go stop a bus that was backing up into a group of students. And that's why I jumped out of the bus. And I, I just remember the, the feeling of heat and humidity. Um, yep. And then that initial reaction of when I pulled my hand out of the window and literally the blood squirted out and hit the driver. Yep. And, and when that happened, I thought, Oh my God, I can't believe that this is how it's going to end. Yeah, right. You know, so, so it's very clear. I have very, very clear memories of that. So the smell bypasses the neocortex and goes straight to our limbic or emotional center in our brain yeah. and that therefore trigger an immediate emotional response. Out of the five senses, it's the quickest to get you that response. The others actually go through our rational or reasoning mind. So if, if a person is self-aware, they can stop them. But smell doesn't let that happen straight to, to it. Wow. So um, for me, it was hot asphalt. And when I smelled hot asphalt, immediately I would flare because coming into a population centre, 63 degrees, you, you know what it's yeah, like yeah, over there. Yeah. And you come up to a population centre and that smell of hot asphalt, yeah. well, we'd start waving at people. And if they didn't wave back or if they gave us certain motions, we called that atmospherics, which meant you took all the safety catches off all your guns and you got ready because it was on. Yeah. And so that smell of hot asphalt raised my, put myself um, through that experience. So what happens with trauma, um, but this is just not trauma either. So, you know, your birthday, the first birthday cake you, you would remember, you'll again, have, you'll have a, generally, will have a positive um, emotion so you'll go back to that birthday cake. Now, I'll almost guarantee it's probably not your first birthday cake. It's the first one that you remember. Mm-hmm. And the remembering will be because of, oh, it, it's like the best one that I remember. Could be 13, could be below it, doesn't matter. So the way the, the trauma is infused like this and it beds down. Now, the more you relive the image, the more that the emotion spikes. Mm-hmm. And so you get this battle in your subconscious and it just gets more and more toxicity occurs until you take the image and you separate the image from the emotion, which means you actually have to go into the emotion, not the image. The image does not need to be relived, but the emotion needs to be gone into and let flow. Now, if you don't let that emotion flow, what's happened is from the time of incident to the present moment, and this is where a lot of therapy doesn't actually hit this point, you can reframe in this moment how you look at the bus or the incident or the roadside bomb, you can reframe it. So you can turn the emotional tap off. But if you haven't processed the emotion which is stored in your system at a cellular level, then um, from the point of impact to the point of trauma to that moment of reframing, then what will happen is that emotion in your system will bring you back into it. It will keep drawing you back. And that's what relapse happens. It's how relapse happens. Yeah, yeah. So when I got through my post-traumatic stress, I went into the bucket of emotion and I emptied it. Now, this is not just a, um, you know, for me, it wasn't a one-off process. There are systems like EMDR and, um, and numerous other modalities which 
a very quick act allowing you to release the trauma. My issue with a lot of these strategies is if you understand a worldview of holistic nature, there's a reason why your hand went through the glass window. Mm, And without deeply getting the gift of that, Mm -hmm. then you'll manifest situations in life for the universe to try and help you realise that until you do. I call it the feather, the brick and the train. Yeah. And I just, you know, the universe comes and says, James, wake up, wake up, tickles me under the chin. I don't get the lesson, so it smacks me in the face with a brick. And I go, bugger, that hurt, but I still charge down the path until the train comes and smashes me. You know, my marriage might fail or I lose my job or, you know, I have a nervous breakdown. All those things are like a train. Well, I took it to the next level. I took it to a roadside bomb, you know. (laughs) That's how I joined it. But when we learn the lessons of life and we start engaging life as opposed to being engaged by it, then this becomes a dance, the dance of life. And so trauma is about releasing that emotion to the image. And I can tell you that all the um, technical specifications of the 23rd of April 2007 at 6.10 local time um, and what happened. I can also tell you that my daughter woke up instantaneously the moment I was hit, 12,000 kilometres away, and screamed unconsolably for 45 minutes. Wow. I can also tell you that I came home from Iraq not thinking I'd be able to have another child. But 12 months to the day I was hit, my second daughter came to the world. Abby, my firstborn, knows she's the one who helped me learn my lesson. And Penny, my secondborn, knows she's the gift from the universe, great spirit, or whatever it is out there for learning, well, at least that lesson. You know, she's probably come to teach me a few more, but, you know, that's a different story. Yeah, that's... that's, Does that that explain it? Yeah, it totally does, and... One of the things that, you know, very few people know this, um, but what happened after the accident, it, it's, it's pretty... So I, I was... Um, our passports were being renewed in Bangkok, so the accident happened in Cambodia. And our passports were being renewed in Bang- Bangkok, so we didn't have our passports. And I was rushed to the local medical center, and because it was a severed artery... I needed an orthopedic surgeon. No orthopedic surgeons were around, so I was in this tourniquet. Uh, There was no morphine. The pain was intense, so they went in with arterial clamps and just dug into the wrist to to clamp off the severed artery. And then after about four hours, they found a retired um, orthopedic surgeon, a Scottish guy, who had done volunteer surgeries on landmine victims. And he ran a charity, and usually he was in the province, but he was in town that day just about to leave when he got the call. So they rushed me to him and he performed an arterial ligation. So he was just able to just clamp off the severed artery on both ends. It was suggested that I immediately go to Bangkok, but I couldn't go to Bangkok because we didn't have our passports. So at the school that we were working at, the prime minister of Cambodia's niece had her children in the school. We contacted her. She escorted us onto the plane without a passport. And then the Canadian embassy issued temporary passports, so when we landed, they wait. They were there. So they, they take me to the orthopedic center, and I'm supposed to have this total reconstruction of the wrist. The next morning, our insurance turned us down so that we had to, and, and we didn't have the money to pay for the procedure, which was in excess of $30,000, $40,000. So we were sent back to Cambodia. Now, the crazy thing is that at the airport, 
I was distraught. I, I was in a state of not panic, but total mental breakdown. And for the first time in years, I, I excused myself from my wife and I walked over. My, my hand was all bandaged up like this. And I walked into the corner of the airport and I prayed. And I prayed for a sign that it was going to be okay. And then there was boarding and we get on the plane and the plane's packed and my wife and I are sitting there and there's one seat beside us and then this Thai woman comes and she asked me to lift her luggage into the overhead compartment and I said to her, I can. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't notice your arm. She gets it up there. She sits beside me. I'm still kind of crying from, from the whole experience. And she asked me, she said, are you okay? And I said, well, no, I'm not. Thank you for asking, but I'm not. And she said, what happened to you? And I said, well, I was in an accident last week in Cambodia. And she looks, her eyes light up. And she said, oh, my God, it was my husband that operated on you. So it was the surgeon's wife. And she said that he came home. She said, the reason why I know, because I told her I worked, the, the school that I worked at, the International School of Phnom Penh. So the, the light bulbs went off. She said that he came home that day and say and said, never talks about his work and said, I think I saved a Canadian guy's life today, at least his arm. And I told her what happened with the insurance and she said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my husband what happened and he will get in touch with you. And he called me the next day and he said, God, and he had a, a trucker mouth on him and he was swearing. He was like, God damn it. He said, I heard what happened. Insurance, um, turned you down. He said, I got a team of American hand specialists that's coming next month from America. He said, we'll do the operation for free on you and we will get your, you know, we'll, it won't cost a cent. But then at the same time, somebody else was working to get me to Singapore. So then that's one thing. But then we find out that a week before the accident, my wife actually just by chance donated $100 to his charity. So there was those two things, and I, I kind of get emotional when I talk about that because I, I think that's the answer that I got from, or that's the sign that I got from the universe saying, and I, I'm not deeply religious, but that God is looking after me, that the universe is looking after me, and this was meant to happen, and that I'm going to be okay. And it was at that point when I, I kind of like, whew, I took my first collective sigh of, relief and trust in the process so that's something that made me like you, you talk about your four biggest moments or your five that was my biggest moment you know so that's what I wanted to share because it aligns with what you're saying and understanding that there's a reason for everything when you when you really look for the the answers and ask the right questions yeah and if you don't know what question to ask don't ask one. Just stop. Just be and just listen. And at times you'll be taken down a path which you'll have no understanding why you're taking down that path at all. But $100 into a charity like one week before, there's, there's a reason for everything. Yeah. And it's all interconnected. Yeah. And when we, when we learn that there's a, there's a shift in human consciousness happening right now from uh, – and you know, a, 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 um, a sterile scientific worldview that matter is dead is shifting dramatically to unite with ancient mystical philosophies from all traditions, which says 
Everything is sentient. Everything has consciousness. And the indigenous of this land would say that the hill I'm on is a being and, and has consciousness and they'll go right down from, to the rocks. And so when we understand, and quantum physics is demonstrating this as well through unified field theory and just yeah. following the Sim Haramon and, and the Resonance Academy. And the, the science is proving and is uniting the old and the new. And when we realise that, we come to this place of realising everything in our life happens for a reason. We, we aren't the centre of the universe, but we are the centre of the universe. We're not special, but everyone is special. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, we, we, with love and compassion in our heart, we can see a, a guy looks at us and he's in anger. And we go, he's not actually angry, he's in pain. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to respond to the anger, I'm going to respond to... The pain. How do I do that? Not with anger, but with compassion, with love. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the whole situation changes. Yeah, and that's it's, what. That's a beautiful, such a beautiful yeah, story, and Andy. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, that's what um, Matt uh, Gabor Mate says. Is it's not why is that person so fucked up? It's it's why the pain, you know, and and then diving more deeply into it through compassionate inquiry. So, um, James, um, you know, to respect your time, this has been an amazing conversation and, and I would love to do a part two and let part one digest and, and really think about some of the things we talked about. Um, but for the sake of the listeners, um, where can they find you? So one of the easiest is just on Facebook, James Greenshields. Uh, the Resilient Leaders Foundation has a Facebook page. But also resilientleadersfoundation.org is the website, which has a limited amount of information on it, but it still would um, give them a basic idea of what we do. Okay. And you talked about the Masters of? Masters in Harmonic Leadership. So it's a 12-month program that we we do. Uh, We have two intakes, one at the start of the year and one in the mid of the year. So it's an application process that people uh, resonate with us because we ask a lot of people in the process to really take themselves apart and make sure that they consciously rebuild themselves in a harmonic way. And it's, it's, it's a process. Uh, and so we help, help people do that. And if they're interested, then please just get in touch with us and we can have a bit of a chat and, and see if it resonates with them. And this is my point, you know, there's always someone out there for anyone. When the, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. But to teach, one must first be able to be taught. To lead, one must first be able to be led. So... Uh, going through through that process is an honour that we, we take very humbly and, and very consciously. Um, but if you're interested in that type of stuff, then just get in touch with us either through Facebook with James Greenshields or, um, as I said, resilientletters.org. Okay, great. And I'm going to close off the show. Just stay on the line, though, okay? I just want to have a, a chat with you after. Thank you very much for listening to this episode with James Greenshields, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.